For many Christians, the second chapter of Luke may be one of the most uh, recognized and beloved portion of this entire gospel. Now, as many of you know, this cover, this, many churches cover this text during their Christmas services. And those who have done deep studies into this chapter have uncovered fascinating spiritual treasures within it. So although this story is old, it never grows cold because of the way it's told. Frederick Buchner said this, it's impossible to conceive how different things, how different things would have turned out if that birth had never happened. Whenever, wherever, however it did, for millions of people who have lived since, the birth of Jesus made it possible, not just, made it possible not just a new way of understanding life, but a new way of living it. It is a truth that for 20 centuries, there have been untold numbers of men and women who in untold number of ways have been so grasped by the child who was born, so caught up in the message he taught and the life he lived that they may have, that they have found themselves profoundly changed by their relationship with him. So this morning, as we begin this new chapter, I hope that through this story of the birth of our savior, you too will have a new way of understanding life and a new way of living it. I hope this story has such an impact, such a profound impact on your own lives that you'll either want to praise God as we'll see in a bit that the angels did or come to him as the shepherds did or even better, both. Praise him and just come to him so that, at, so that when you leave here today, you leave here glorifying and praising God for all the things you've seen in these verses and heard in this message. You see, just as a new day begins when the sun rises over the eastern horizon, so too the birth of our Savior is the sunrise in the Word of God. So before we get into God's Word, let's open up in prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord Heavenly Father, it is such an amazing and wonderful day that you've created, Lord. And we praise you and glorify and thank you that every new morning is a gift from you, Lord. But your greatest gift was, is your son, Jesus Christ, who came here, born of a woman in flesh to save us, Lord. This baby, this is child, your son came down and to become human, to be able to relate to us. So now as we begin this chapter where we read about his birth, speak to us in a mighty way, Lord. May your word just penetrate deep into our hearts, into our minds, we want to see you this morning. We want to experience you. This is such a beautiful and amazing story. And so give us the ears right now. Open our ears, our hearts. Fill this room, this place with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let us forget about all the distractions that are outside these walls for just for less than an hour, Lord. 45 minutes or so and 
and just see what you have to say. So speak to us now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading the first seven verses and then unpack it for you afterwards. Here's what the Word of God says. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Long ago, there ruled in Persia a wise and good king. He loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships. Often he dressed in the clothes of a working man or a beggar and went to the, home of the homes of the poor. No one whom he visited thought he was their ruler. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food the poor man ate. He spoke cheerful, kind words to him. Then he left. Later, he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity by saying, I am your king. The king thought that the man would surely ask for some gift or a favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, I left your pal your, uh, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given rich, gift, uh, rich gifts. To me, have given yourself. Now this, again, is a perfect illustration of what happened when the King of glory, the King of kings, came down. The Lord Jesus Christ was born and became our unspeakable, unspeakable gift. You see, he was content to be born in a stable and laid in a manger so that we could have an eternal mansion when we die. And Luke begins this portion of his narrative by tying the historical truth, the historical birth of Jesus to the history of the wider world. We're told that in those days leading to Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus, whose real name was Octavian, was the Roman emperor, and Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, as a way of flexing his own political muscle, his own political dominance, and to demonstrate that he was in control, the emperor issued a decree that the whole empire should be registered. This registration was actually a census, and its purpose was twofold. It was to find out who needed to be taxed and who was eligible for military service. And it was a responsibility of each governor, of every region, of every territory, to ensure that every person was counted and he would make sure this was done by any, me by any means necessary. 
even if it meant using military force. So every 14 years, each Jewish male had to return to the city of his fathers to record his name, his occupation, the property he owned, and the number, and, and the number of family members he had. It was at this point that Joseph once again enters the center stage. Now, if you remember, the last time Joseph was mentioned was early on in chapter, uh, or in the middle of chapter 1. We're told in verse 4 that because Joseph was from the house and family line of David, he obediently made the 90-mile, and that's roughly three days, a three-day trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, this fact is important for a few reasons. According to Genesis 49.10, the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. According to 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17, he, the Messiah, would be from the family line of David. And according to Micah 5.2, he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. However, verse 5 tells us that he didn't make the trip alone. Mary, who was engaged to Joseph and was more than likely in her last and final trimester of her pregnancy, also went to be registered. Now, she didn't have to go. She didn't have to go with them on this trip, on this long, arduous trip. But maybe, quite possibly, Joseph wanted to take her with him so she wouldn't have to deal with all the gossip and the, sca and the scandal in Nazareth. And she, he didn't want her to deal with that alone. As you know, she would have been, by this time, she would have been fully pregnant. They were essentially married, but it wasn't official and it wasn't consummated yet. And so there would have been questions and I'm sure they would have, they would have heard it by now. As I mentioned um, last week uh, for Mary, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago, Mary was already full of joy. Mary, for Mary, it was no big deal. It was, you know, they can say whatever they wanted to say. They can make fun of her. They can gossip. They can say whatever. But she had the spirit in her, and she was just full of joy. But for Joseph, he cared for her. He loved her. And he just didn't want her to, even though it wouldn't affect her, maybe it affected him. And... He just didn't want her to go through that all by herself. Now, if this is the reason, what does this reveal about their relationship? First of all, it shows how much Joseph loved, cared, and protected the woman he loved. And it also shows how much Mary trusted, obeyed, and felt safe to be with a man that she loved. Now, there are a couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, when you get married or are considering getting married, it's important that you have each other's interest in mind, have each other's interest at hand. And importantly, and more importantly, you've got to have each other's back. You've got to have just, you've got to support one another. Christian husband, Love your wives by protecting them as if they were the, your most prized possession and lead them so that they feel safe and secure. 
You see, God put her in your life to be your friend, to be your companion, to be your advisor, to be your, your lover. You need to take care of that. You need to cherish that. If she's scared about something, comfort her or lead her into the arms of the one who can. Christian wife, as hard as it may be for some of you, you must make an effort to just trust your husband and allow him to lead. That is his role, that is his responsibility to lead, to lead the home. If you know, in it, that, in it, in, if you know that his heart is in the right place and he wants to take you with him for that 90-mile uncomfortable trip, go. Go, knowing that God is leading him. And if he's making a mistake, or if you think his motives are wrong, he will be held accountable to God. The husband will be held accountable because he is the leader. Essentially, he's the, the priest, the pastor, the leader of your home. You're going to be account women, wives, you're going to be accountable for, again, what you say, what you do, but he is going to be accountable as the leader of your home. <clears throat> Secondly, marriage will be a long and bumpy road. And you may disagree with the direction you should go or how to get to your destination. But whichever way you go, do it together, regardless of the condition of the road, regardless if it's a bumpy, crazy road or if it's a smooth road. Do it together. If Christ is at the center of both your lives, he will lead you to your final destination and he will lead you there together. There will be times when it seems that walking away, giving up, just saying, you know what, you go your way, I'll go my way, we'll eventually meet there, is the easiest or better option. But don't believe the lie. So what I'm saying is don't give up. Don't give up, just take the road together. Take it together. Don't walk away. Keep walking hand in hand. Keep walking with each other. Commit to one another to stick it out and then constantly remind each other that staying together is and always will be a part of God's plan. Well, as we move on, as we move forward in this passage with surprising reserve and simplicity, Luke then presents Jesus' birth in just two verses. Now what I want to do again is read verse 6 and as I do, I want you to answer this question. What does this verse tell you about God? And there, in verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. If your answer, or if you answered, God is in control, then guess what? You get an extra donut afterwards. Um, sure, the decree may have brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. But it was just a means 
of a sovereign God to accomplish his perfect plan. So if God used the emperor's decree to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that the Messiah might be born there and fulfill prophecy, who's really in control? Caesar Augustus or God? The truth is, Caesar Augustus was merely a tool in God's hand to bring to pass what he had said in Micah 5.2. Bethlehem. Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. The point is this. Everything that happened from the place to the timing was perfectly arranged by a sovereign and omniscient God. We as Christians need to understand that whether you agree or disagree with the direction our political leaders are taking this country, God is in control. So if you don't like what's going on right now, trust in God. He's in control. Whether that happens in four years, eight years, later on down the line, and this country is going crazy, God is in control. He knows what's happening. He has our lives in the palm of his hand. He knows what he's doing. We have to trust him. We may not trust what's going on in D.C. We may not trust what's going on in Austin. But we can trust God. We can trust God with our lives, with our hope, with our future, just with everything that we have, because he will never disappoint you. God is in control. And if, God, and, if, and if God's word controls all lives, then the events of history only help us to fulfill the will of God. Now in verse 7, four things should also stick out to you. Mary gave birth to her firstborn. This implies that she had other children later on. Secondly, she wrapped him in tight, tightly in cloth. Following the practice of her day, Mary wrapped the baby in strips of cloth to keep his arms and his legs straight. Thirdly, she laid him in a manger. The word translated manger is translated stall in Luke 13, 15, and can mean either a feeding trough or an enclosure for animals. And why was he laid in a manger? Because there was, fourthly, because there was no guest room available for them, indicating that the family was forced to either stay in the stable or perhaps a cave that served as a stable because there was no room available for them all over Bethlehem. Now it's mind-blowing to think that God chose the earth's lowest place to bring heaven's highest. That in that manger, there, that baby, was God himself in the flesh. Spurgeon said this about the birth of Jesus. Let us take courage here. If Jesus Christ was born in a manger, 
in Iraq, why should he not come and live in our rocky hearts? If he was born in a stable, why should, why should not the stable of our souls be made into a house for him? If he was born in poverty, may, may not the poor in spirit expect that he will be their friend? If he thus endured degradation at the first, will he count it any dishonor to come to the very poorest and humblest of his creatures and tabernacle in the souls of his children? What an amazing quote. He did that. He did that for us. God sent his son for us. Well, in the next passage we'll be reading, we're going to see how the birth of our Savior had an immediate impact. So let's pick up in verse 8. If you have your Bibles open and um, read along as I read aloud, out loud the next few verses. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region... Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find him wrapped tightly in a cloth, laying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Here Luke quickly shifts from a king lying where animals eat to burly men protecting their natural homes, protecting animals in their natural homes. Shepherding had changed from a family business in David's time to a despised occupation. Shepherding was also a lonely occupation, particularly at night, as a, step, as a shepherd stood watch, making sure his sleeping sheep did not wake up and wander off, or that prowling predators did not attack and devour the sheep. Only God would visit those in such a low occupation and raise them to be witnesses of his salvation. 
Yet shepherds had a tender side too. They counted the sheep constantly. They lift the weak ones on their shoulders. They'd go out and find the one lost one and bring them back with the other sheep. And he created crude pens where the sheep would feel safe and where they'd be able to sleep. James S. Stewart observes, and is there not a world of meaning in the fact that it, is, it was very ordinary people, busy about ordinary tasks, whose eyes first saw the glory, the glory of the coming of the Lord? It means first that the, that the place of duty, however humble, is the place of vision. And it means second, that it is men who have kept the deep, simple pieties of life and have not lost the child heart to whom have not lost the child heart to whom the gates of the kingdom must readily open. Now in verse 9, the spotlight shift once again. An angel of the Lord stood before the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now as they recoiled in terror, the angel comforted them. He had the right words to tell them and then afterwards broke the news. It was good news. It was good news and great joy for all the people. Now, if you're asking in what way, or they may have been asking in what way, or how was it good news and great joy for all the people? Well, that very day in Bethlehem, a baby had been born. Not just any baby, not just any ordinary baby, this baby was none other than the Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Now here's what this means. First, he is a Savior, which is expressed in his name, Jesus. Then he's the Messiah, the anointed of God, the promised one of Israel. And finally, he is the Lord, God manifest in the flesh. Then the angel perfectly describes two ways in which those shepherds would recognize him. First, the baby would be wrapped tightly in the cloth. And the second part of that sign was that he would be laying in a manger. Verses 13 and 14 then tell us that an angelic chorus just a host of angels just started, started singing praises, started glorifying God, and it catches, that song catches the full significance of the birth of this baby. His life and his ministry would bring glory to God in the highest of heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean, the people he favors? Who are these people he favors? The people God favors are those who repent of their sins and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're his children, those who are born again, those who have his spirit living and dwelling and working through them. Those 
who are his. Those are the people he favors. Now this angelic presence doesn't last forever. Angels leave. Miracles come to an end. And so what next? Now people must respond. How could these shepherds respond? These tough, burly men whose theological education came from the heavens and meadows rather than from the synagogue and its rabbis. Well, rather than arguing with each other, rather than saying, well, you know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure this word gets out there? You know, do we have to start a uh, new synagogue? Do we have to do this? Do we have to? No. They made an immediate decision. And that decision was to go to Bethlehem and see what God had reported to them. And once they got there, once they got to where Joseph and Mary and this infant child were, they got to see the work of God in the face of this infant baby laying in a manger. And now they wanted to be part of the work God was doing in his world. And as Mary, all this was going on, as they were reporting everything that they had seen and what God had told them, Mary was just treasuring all this information within her. She, it says that, that Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. What this means that, is that she had a deeper understanding of what was going on and was just treasuring it. It's like seeing, I'm sure that all of you who have small kids or even big kids, you see accomplishment, you see your kid doing something beautiful and wonderful and you're like, you just spend time looking at him and just treasuring it and just, Recording it in your memory so that it stays with you your entire life. I have many recordings of all my kids in my, my own personal memory that I'll take with me until my dying day. But that's essentially what she was doing here. But again, she had a deeper understanding because, don't forget, she had God's Spirit in her. But not only that, throughout... Jesus' entire life, throughout her entire life, she continued to ponder that. She continued to meditate on it. She, it was something continual. It just didn't stop then and there. This was something that she constantly thought about. And it's, some say that many of Luke's, that Luke's account, a lot of it may have came, come from Mary because, again, all these things she was keeping within her. She was treasuring it. Now afterwards in verse 20, Luke writes that they returned glorifying, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and all the things, well, all the things they had seen and heard were just as they had been told. Now here's a couple of observations I made when I was reading this that I want to share with you. By glorifying and praising God, these men these shepherds, these tough guys 
we're now taking the place of angels. Angels were once glorifying and praising God, and now these men were taking their place. He, they were glorifying Him now, and they were praising Him. Secondly, I noticed, what I noticed was that they humbly returned to the regular duties. However, when they did that, they weren't the same men they were before. Now they were new men. They were transformed men just going back to their old jobs. These shepherds here are a good example, are a good example for us to imitate today. You see, they heard it. They received by faith the message God sent them and then responded with immediate obedience. And this is how the Lord wants us as believers to imitate today or to, to, to live. He wants us to receive his word by faith, respond in obedience, proclaim it with glory and praise with all your might, and then live your life whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, you will live your lives changed by it. You will no longer be the same. Just as these shepherds, these shepherds' lives were forever changed by the good news of Jesus, when you truly encounter the Lord, your life will also be forever changed. In a survey, nearly a third of those questions stated that if all the persons mentioned in the Christmas, of all the persons mentioned in the Christmas story, they identified the most with the shepherds. Why? Because the shepherds were average, ordinary people who were invited to see the birth of the King of Kings. I want to share with you one more quote by Spurgeon. He said this, with all, uh, with all the humility that surrounded the birth of Christ, there was yet very much that was glorious, very much that was honorable. No other man ever had such a birthday as Jesus Christ had, of whom had, of whom had prophets and seers ever written as they wrote him, whose name is engraved on so many tablets as his. Who had such a scroll of prophecy all pointing to him as Jesus Christ, the God-man? Then remember concerning his birth. When did God ever hang a fresh lamp in the sky to announce the birth of Caesar? Caesars may come and they may die, but stars shall never prophesy their birth. When did angels ever stoop from heaven and sing choral symphonies? on the birth of his mighty man, of a mighty man. No, all others are passed by. But look, in heaven there is a great light shining, and a song is heard. Glory to God, the, glory to God the high, in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So as you can see, our story here began, our story this morning began 
with a simple, with a man simply obeying a decree, simply obe obeying the law of the land. And it ends with a true king, with a true king of kings, worshipped by angels and shepherds. Friends, this is only the beginning. This is only the beginning of the gospel message. It begins here and it ends on the cross. It begins in a manger and ends on a cross. What a beautiful image. What a beautiful story we're going to unpack and cover within the next few weeks, few months. It might be actually several months, but um, I, want to, I don't want to rush through this book because there's so many beautiful truths. And I hope, again, as, a, as I've said before, I hope that you go home and you study it yourself, that you go back and study the passage and that we covered and, and just uncover more deep truths that are found there. This message, this gospel message, gives our life meaning and gives our life hope. As I close here, there may be some of you watching and listening that don't have that right now. Don't have that hope within them, have lost all hope, have no hope. They feel like there's no meaning to life. Everything's empty. Everything is just horrible. Life is horrible. But let me tell you, when you come to the manger, like the shepherds did, and see the face and kneel before that child, everything changes. Your whole life, you will see this world with fresh eyes, with a new heart, with a new mind. And that's why God brought His Son. God brought His Son to die for you, to die for your sins, to forgive you of everything that you've done, whether it's stealing a pen, whether it's murder, whether it's, I mean, you can name it. Every single wrong thing that you've done, there's nothing horrible that you've done as, that, that God can't forgive. Amen. He will forgive you if you just come to Him humbly, broken, and just say, Here, Lord, take my sins. Take my sins from me and cleanse me. Make me new. But you have to acknowledge your wrongdoing. You have to personally just come to him and say, yeah, I messed up. And once he does that, once you receive his forgiveness, he gives you his spirit, and your life will never be the same. You may go back to your old life, like the shepherds did, but you will be a new man. You will be a new woman. And if that's what you desire, if that's what you want, and that's what you seek, and wherever you're at, close your eyes. I want to lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus into your heart. And 
this has to be genuine. This isn't a ticket for a free ride to heaven. Because the Lord sees your heart. He knows what's in it and you can't lie to him. So if you're ready and you're at that point where you just, you want to be born again, with all sincerity, pray this. Lord God, I've sinned. I admit that I've blown it and that I've sinned against you. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I believe that he is your son. I confess him. I come to the cross now and lay all my sins upon him. Wash me. Cleanse me, Lord. Make me new. Give me a new heart, Lord, and then fill that heart with your spirit. I want to walk with you, Lord, all the days of my life. So strengthen me, Lord. Surround me, surround me with people who will lead me towards you. I receive your forgiveness by faith, Lord. Thank you, thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen.